You know, when you read Paul, you enter into a history lesson. It's unavoidable. In 1 Corinthians this morning, we have him addressing the people of Corinth through his first letter to them, although there are letters that precede this. We have bits and pieces of them and references to them, if not the documents themselves. And these folks in Corinth that he's speaking with, they were a tough bunch. With a long tradition of pagan worship and idols and wild and glutinous festivals, he had his hands full in keeping those he had persuaded, converted into the fold, while trying to bring others in, all the while traveling the ancient lands and communicating by letters, not texts, not emails, but by letters carried in caravans. And on this day, Corinth was causing Paul quite a bit of concern. Think raucous animal house. Parties as a way of life. Think of Paul viewing his body as a temple filled with the Spirit of God preaching, not accepting pay for his preaching so that he would not be confused with someone that would say things so he could be paid for what he would say. No, he was doing this just to encourage his followers to do the same as he would do. Trying to overcome living in this pagan society of practices and friendly pagan folk caught up in the Isthmian Games, those off-Olympic year games that were played in Corinth and named for the Isthmus of Corinth. And Paul is in Corinth for a reason. It's not just that he sort of stumbled there. Under the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius, in between the third and the fourth centuries, Claudius got tired of having the Jews around. They were just causing him too much trouble, so he expelled them all from Rome. And many of them went to Corinth. So that was a likely place for Paul to go on his missionary work. And he is now in this letter, again, pleading with Corinth, please, please, don't lose the ground you've gained. He uses illustrative language and anything else that his persuasive spirit and words are able to produce. He assigns the analogy of the race of the games, the Isthmian games, to make his point. You can almost hear him. You heard Jim say it, and you can almost hear Paul's most charismatic voice coming through the words that Jim read for us this morning. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run, run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath, or rather, they do it. I'm not such a good Paul. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I, my friends, do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating just the air to show you I can. But I punish my body. I enslave my body so that after proclaiming to others, I myself might not be disqualified. When he first got to Corinth, Paul was met by Aquila and his wife, 
Prisca or Priscilla. They were two of the Jews that were chased out of Rome due to Claudius's ruling earlier. And when he got there, they took Paul to the synagogue. He met other Jews who were there and he began to preach and witness the gospel and people followed him. They were sold, persuaded on the gospel. He stayed there for two years. He lived with Achilla and Presca. Achilla was a tent builder. And he was a member of the lower class of the society. And for Paul, tent building was a humble way to make a living. And that's what he did while he was there for two years. Now, when he started to write to Corinth, there was some things going on, as I mentioned. The folks there that he had converted, he had established the church for them. They were part of the church. He had gone off on his other missionary tours, and he receives words that they're starting to slip back into this old, familiar way of associating with the secular environment, the pagan environment. And then there were those two. I mean, you can imagine it, right? There were those two who were starting to feel the pressure of being different in this place in Corinth, this small group of Jews who were believers now in the gospel of Christ. And there were so many around them giving them a hard time. They, they were probably hearing a lot of like, what, what is this boring life you're living? What are you, what are you doing? Temple and praying. Do you know how much fun you're not having? Come on. What are you following such a loser for a God anyway? It's no fun. Paul was writing to them to try and get them hang in there. I mean, he had a, think of the distance between him and they. Him and them. And the work that he had done. And the frustration of feeling like it was being lost. And what could he do? You know, I always find it interesting that we think there's this idea that somehow we're much different than the folks of Jesus or Paul's time. It occurs to me that over this distance, this arc of time, that the frustration that we maybe should have about the teachings of Jesus and the way that we're practicing them today seems to fade. And we think of it much differently. We're much better than they are. But it occurs to me that if we lived then in their times and they lived now in our times, we'd pretty much be the same. The human condition is still the human condition. And for all we've gotten better, a closer look challenges that idea as a pure notion. Well, we don't go to war like they did, we might say. Oh, really? Well, if we added up all of the lives lost in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Bosnia, the current Sudan conflict, Korea, our civil war, the Mexican-American war, throw in a couple of world wars, or the nearly 600 wars categorized, conflicts categorized as wars since 1816, 600 since 1816 on carletsofwar.org. there's a pretty good chance that all of the casualties of those wars would have pretty much wiped out the entire population of the ancient East in Paul's days. But 
weaponry. Well, you can't quite say that we're really as barbarous as they were. Boy, they had brutal practices. They crucified Jesus. And they, really, how about napalm? How about bazookas? How about nuclear weapons? How about drones? How about any of the numbers of weapons that you can think of? Now, there are pretty good arguments to make that despite our civilization and 2,000 years of distance between Paul and us, between the people of Corinth at that time and us, there's a good argument to be made that we have become more immersed in war as a solution to our factions and more brutal in the destructive power of our weaponry disguised as strength, decisiveness, and justice. And I think that it is that same mindset, that same thinking and primitive satisfaction that produces these things that is what we are obsessed with in the sense of winning. Winning the race, whatever it is. Well, except when it comes to salvation. I mean, we don't want to be boring, you know. When I say salvation, I was thinking about that. What I'm really saying is, read that as following a life of the gospel. But instead, the race seems too close to heading off a cliff sometimes. A cliff that is before us as we pursue and chase barbarism and domination over others. You know, and it, it really comes down, really comes down that the deepest, most difficult problems we have are in getting along, primarily because of the inequity of our systems of living and the oppression of minorities within those societies and structures. That's it. As Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome to an exile in Corinth, you could hear him say, just get them out of my sight. Get them out of here. It's my country. Get them out of here. In some ways, we tragically do the same. And the result of such factions that we deal with and divisions, we build these thick and nearly impenetrable walls between us saying, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you on the street. Don't walk up to me. No, don't come to my church. Go somewhere else. Get out of my This desire to fracture, or as Paul says, break into factions, is subtle, it is intoxicating, and it is dangerous. It takes on many forms. It crosses social, economic, theological, and personal boundaries. It blurs vision and moral choices. It confuses us. What should I do? Whose side should I be on? Should I tell? Or should I keep quiet? For Paul, the answer was clear. It was clear for him because it was clear for Jesus. In fact, in some ways, both of them probably had some problems understanding why others didn't get it. And in each of these individuals, there was a great love of God and trust in the Spirit that naturally brought with it love of and for one another with an inclination and an exhortation to the possible. 
It is why we care for each other and why the factions that divide us are so destructive and so deadly because they underscore, underline, persuade us that what we think is possible is not. We live in a time where the invisibility inherent in faction building of the other except when the other comes too close and needs to be pushed away, then we see them. But otherwise, we build in this invisibility once we get people away. And we've got to work on it. We have to work on the way that we are misled about what is acceptable when it comes to caring for one another. It is not a compartmentalized effort if we are practicing the teachings of Jesus the Christ, the gospel, and probably every other holy book of any import through all time. It is not acceptable in my mind to know of abuse and not report it. To know of someone living alone who needs help and not help them to get it. To know of someone living in the belly of a city in unsafe conditions and ignore or idolize it. Addressing factions and invisibility puts us into close proximity with that which we too often wish to avoid or turn a blind eye towards. Not only is that not loving towards others, it creates a system of marginalization and inequity in which we struggle and lament today. And when boundaries of friendship or hatred even cause us to turn that blind eye toward others in need, we ourselves are blinded and lost on the path. Paul explains to the Corinthians that he is not asking them to do anything he wouldn't do. The reason he works so hard to be faithful and give testimony to the gospel is so that when he asks others to do the things, he is not asking them to do anything he would not do or has not done himself. He is talking the talk and walking the walk, and he is taking heat for it. He is taking challenges for it. He will eventually be martyred for it. And it is that which this sanctuary and Yanhu's Presbyterian Church and Neighborhood House has always known. The people gathered here and places like it have power to change things, great things, with the simplest of actions. There are those here who I will not embarrass who are here on a regular basis helping with our clothing room as volunteers. There are people here who fold and sort and come every Sunday morning and prepare worship and the meals that will be part of this morning for you. For you. In Mark's familiar telling of Jesus healing the leper, there is that very interesting part where the leper looks at Jesus that Mel read for us this morning, and the leper says, if you choose, 
you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I choose. You know, I think that at that moment, something flowed through Jesus to the person with leprosy. Something deeply cosmic and loving traveled from God through Jesus to the person now healed. Nothing was required. Nothing. Except for Jesus to choose to answer the call. To help the least among them in the society of their time. Most people of his time turned away, turned a blind eye toward the lepers and the unclean. Get out of my sight! Jesus chose to see and to act. If you choose, said the leper, I choose, said Jesus. And us? What about us? How do we choose?